A native of Cork, Arthur Roach joined the army as a chaplain about three years ago and served at Salonica for some time. Proceeding to Russia last October with the 17th King's Liverpools. He was constantly in the firing line during the last months that followed and the march fell into the hands of the enemy. His capture took place about two miles behind the front where he and some others were ambushed by a party of Bolsheviks which had penetrated the line through a thick wood. In trying to make their escape, three of them were killed and Father Roach had a marvellous escape, his outer garments being pierced by numerous machine gun bullets. Eventually he obtained shelter behind the body of a dead horse. He was afterwards marched a distance of about 60 miles to the Bolshevist divisional headquarters, where he was treated in a sympathetic and friendly fashion. Finding that he was a non-combatant, the commandant, a Pole, ordered his release, and he was sent back to British lines under a white flag at the end of six days. That's a newspaper report that was carried in the Irish Independent and the Cork Examiner in June 1919. This is Peters and Sheep, Rebel Tales from the Land, bringing you more hidden histories of the Irish Revolution. In this episode, we're going to be back looking at the Irish regiments in the British Army and where they were in 1919 and 1920 and 1921. And that where is Turkey, Egypt, Sudan, Iran, Iraq and India, as well as on the Polish-German frontier in Upper Silesia and also occupying the Rhineland in Western Germany. That's part of three continents. We'll not cover all of that in one podcast episode, so we'll leave the European end of things to one side. In some ways, this is a follow-on from an earlier episode, The Last Campaign of the Leinsters, which looked at the Leinster Regiment's role in suppressing the Malabar Rebellion in southwest India in 1921. So be sure to check that out too, and remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and follow and share the project on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Now, looking at the Irish regiments in these years is not just some random obscure military history. It's about putting the Irish Revolution into its global context and understanding it, understanding the Irish Revolution is not an isolated insular event, not just the latest episode in the 800 years, but in fact as the local manifestation of a world revolutionary wave. Hence the title Dubs, Dirty Shirts and the World Revolution. Dubs, the not very creative nickname of the Royal Dublin Fusiliers. Dirty Shirts, the moniker that the Royal Munster Fusiliers earned in Delhi. And then looking at their roles in 1919 and 1920, telling us something about the world revolution that the Irish Revolution was a part of. I'll also be talking a bit about the top boy in the British Army in these years, County Longford man, Sir Henry Wilson. Now back to June 1919, to Father Roach, the aforementioned Dominican, and his marvellous escape from Bolshevik bullets. Roach went on to explain to the newspaper that the Bolsheviks are evidently short of food. While he was with them, they had nothing but rye bread, dry fish and rice. There is a general feeling in the army that the Russian campaign will finish up during the present year, and the arrival of reinforcements have strengthened that disbelief. The newspaper went on to add a bit of detail. and the Bolshevist army, there were no officers in the accepted sense of the term, certain men from the ranks being appointed to give directions. Father Roach spent a good deal of his time with the American troops, of whom about 40% are Catholics. That's what the Irish Independent and the Cork Examiner reported of uh, Father Roach's time in the Murmansk and Archangel Front in northern Russia. 
Now, Roach wasn't in a specifically Irish regiment. He was in the King's Regiment, Liverpool, the 17th Battalion of it, which was one of the new army specifically raised for the First World War. Indeed, that battalion was disbanded after its visit to Russia. So that said, obviously a regiment from Liverpool is going to have Irish people in it and people of Irish descent. Perhaps that's why Roach was a chaplain in its ranks. In fact, the King's Liverpools did have an attached territorial unit which advertised itself as Irish. So it's important to remember that the specifically Irish regiments, the regiments depoted on the island of Ireland, did not comprise of all of the Irish men in the British Army. Uh, first off, the likes of Glasgow, Liverpool, Manchester were all cities with significant Irish populations. And you could join any unit. So, for example, a young county down man died in Waziristan in uh, 1920, leading an Indian Army unit. Incidentally, part of the Liverpool Regiment was actually in Cork in these years, busy countering the insurgency there. So, Roach was up in the northern part of European Russia, the Murmansk and Archangel Front. The 17th Kings was there from October 1918 to September 1919. Uh, this was part of the British effort to support the Whites against the Reds in the Russian Civil War. One of the Irish regiments saw action in this effort, but not on that front, but far to the south. The 1st Battalion Royal Irish Fusiliers, that's the regiment of counties Lyle, Cavan, Monaghan and Armagh, was in action against the Red Army in May 1920. Uh, this happened on the northern shores of what we now call Iran, but was then known to Westerners as Persia. Persia and the Russian Empire, or the Soviet Union as it was becoming, had a sea border in the Caspian Sea. Basically what happened was a white naval unit took shelter in a Persian port and the Red Army came in pursuit and the Royal Irish Fusiliers cleared the way right out of there, retreating 50 miles inland where there was some further skirmishing with the Russians. There was actually a small Royal Naval contingent on the Caspian Sea in those years, while Batum, a city on the nearby Black Sea in what is now Georgia, was under British military occupation, an occupation headed by Corkman James Cook Collis. Persia is a good example of why we cannot understand imperialism simply in terms of formal empire, in terms of actual formal colonies where the reunion flag is flying over the centre of government. Persia was never a formal colony. But there was inordinate British influence in the country in these years and extensive British interests, notably the Anglo-Persian Oil Company or British Petroleum as we call it today. Now, all of this may seem very far removed from Ireland and indeed only distantly connected by virtue of the fact it was Irish troops stationed in these faraway outposts of empire. But in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. The Irish Revolution was part of a world revolution not only were international influences on the revolution itself, but it was facing a state which was dealing with revolution across the globe and also busy with imposing a new order on the new world formed by the defeat of the central powers in the Great War. Now, that's very important. The perspective of the British government had to be one that looked at the empire as a whole and indeed the perspective of the even wider global interests of British imperialism. That tends not to be appreciated in Ireland because we are still wallowing in the mud of how a quite conservative mid-20th century European society wanted to remember its revolution. An utterly militaristic and wholly nationalistic tale of guerrilla heroes, stories of Kilmichael and Kevin Barry, that's how an independent nation state legitimates itself. I mean, 
The Ireland of the 1930s, the 1940s, the 1950s, the Ireland of Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and the Catholic Church was not going to look at the Irish Revolution from the perspective of a world revolution. But Lloyd George had to. Lloyd George, the last Prime Minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, did not have the luxury of just concentrating on Cork. He had to think of Cork, Cairo, Constantinople and many other places. We can understand something of how things looked from the upper echelons of the British state from the scribblings of County Longford man Sir Henry Wilson. From the beginning of 1918 to the beginning of 1922, the position of Chief of the Imperial General Staff was held by Wilson. That's the highest military role in the British state. Now, so here's going to be a little bit about Wilson before we pick up the main thread again. Probably what Wilson is best known for in Ireland is being shot. Wilson was assassinated in June 1922. An assassination carried out by two ex-British soldiers, Reginald Dunn, a one-time Irish guard, and Joseph O'Sullivan, a one-time Royal Monster Fusilier. O'Sullivan had lost a leg on the Western Front in 1917, something which likely contributed to the assassin's failure to escape. Wilson was the MP for North Down when he was shot, making him the sole sitting MP to fall to assassination in all the years between 1812 and 1979. Dunn and O'Sullivan were executed on the 10th of August 1922 in Wandsworth Prison, and their bodies were later repatriated to Ireland in 1967 and uh, buried in Deansgrange, Dublin. Wilson's family home was uh, raised to the ground by Dunn and O'Sullivan's comrades. So Wilson was killed as part of one Irish civil war, the communal strife in the northeast of the island. Wilson was an advisor to the Northern Ireland government and was blamed by Dunn for what Dunn called the Orange Terror. Wilson's death helped launch another Irish civil war in that the British government wrongly blamed the insurgent irreconcilables of the anti-treaty IRA for his death and demanded that the Irish Free State Government do something about it or they would. And this was while the British state still had troops in the territory of the Irish Free State. So that's pretty much how Wilson enters the Irish history books. But we can understand the bigger picture that events in Ireland fit into through using Wilson's career and his diaries and documents from this time. So the thing about Wilson is he was a a diehard Southern Unionist, someone who wanted to keep all of Ireland within the United Kingdom. He eventually broke with the British cabinet over their negotiations for peace with the Irish separatists. So if anything, he probably exaggerated the importance of the situation in Ireland to the empire as a whole. From the left bank of the Don to India is our interest and preserve, is what Wilson wrote on the 5th of November 1918. That's just as the First World War was coming to an end. What he's talking about there is basically what is now Southern European Russia, the Caucasus, and the whole of what we call the Middle East or better Western Asia, including what had up until then been the Ottoman Empire. From Wilson's perspectives, the fire of war had consumed the Russian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and the German Empire, leaving the field clear for the British Empire. But the subterranean fires of revolution alighting here, there and soon everywhere meant he had to retreat from this moment of high imperial hubris. Soon Wilson would be the voice of retrenchment, the voice of holding on to the vital interests of the empire, the voice of holding on for dear life what had to be held. Wilson was uh, unusual only in that he included the verdant pastures of County Longford as a vital interest right next on the list to the Suez Canal. First problem was the soldier strikes of January 1919 
the most prominent events of which were the refusal of 10,000 troops at Folkestone, Kent, to embark for some corner of a foreign field. These soldiers had been home for Christmas leave and wanted to stay home. That happened on the 3rd of January 1919. The next day on the 4th, there was a similar 2,000-strong demonstration in Dover. This sped up the demobilisation of the bloated First World War Army. The government had wanted to go forward with the pretense that the war was still ongoing. So these soldier strikes in the British Army they have to be seen in the context of the massive episodes of mutiny, desertion and combat refusal in the Russian, German and French armies. At the end of the month, the end of January 1919, at the ops end of Britain, there was the 40-hour strike in Glasgow, which was an unofficial action led by the Clyde Workers' Committee for a reduction in the working week to 40 hours from 54 hours. The official National Union representation had agreed a 47-hour week. This reduced working week that the Clyde Workers' Committee was fighting for was advocated for specifically as a means of providing employment to discharged ex-servicemen. So by the 30th of January 1919, 40,000 workers in the engineering and shipbuilding um, industries in Clydeside were out on strike. They were joined by electricity supply workers in Glasgow and 36,000 miners in the Lanarkshire and Stirlingshire coal fields. On 31st of January, there took place the Battle of George's Square and a day of clashes between the strikers and the police known as Bloody Friday. There was then a request for military assistance from the local authorities and the deployment of as many as 10,000 troops, including a detachment of six tanks. Now, events in Glasgow were parallel to some degree in the contemporary strike for a 44-hour week in Belfast. In early March 1919, there was the beginning of the Egyptian Revolution, with riots and mass demonstrations in response to the arrest and exiling of nationalist leaders. Meanwhile, in India, there were protests against the anarchical and Revolutionary Crimes Act of 1919, piece of repressive legislation continuing the World War I curbs on civil liberties, uh, the infamous Amritsar massacre of the 13th of April 1919, which killed almost 400 or over 1,000, depending on whom you believe, was aimed at a demonstration called in protest at the arrests of activists who were opposing this repressive legislation. It was in response to this repressive stance of the government that the mass non-cooperation movement of 1920 to 1922 was developed in India. By August 1919, Wilson was writing of the need to be sure that we have troops we require to keep our four storm centres quiet. Ireland, Egypt, Mesopotamia and India. Lloyd George had just announced a curtailment of military spending in favour of social programmes for fear, as he put it, we should at once create an enemy within our own borders and one which would be better provided with dangerous weapons than Germany. The following year, in July 1920, Wilson noted, What is essential is concentration of forces in the theatres vital to us. England, Ireland, Egypt, India, Mesopotamia, in that order. Now we need to hold on a minute and consider that statement more closely. That's the man with the highest position in the British military. Like... He's next to the ministers in the cabinet, okay? The only way you go higher than uh, than Sir Henry Wilson is you get to an actual politician, right? 
That's the man with the highest position in the British military describing England as a theatre. A theatre is military speak for the place that they'll be fighting in. Now, Wilson and the cabinet that he answered to were already operating on the basis that there would be no major European war for at least another 10 years, let alone one fought in England. Earlier that year, Wilson had set the general staff to work on plans to address what he called mutiny and revolution in Britain. This is what he meant by the English theatre. The plan was to concentrate troops in southern England, but near to the coast so they could be moved by sea, the preposition being that strikes would have crippled railway traffic. While 18 battalions, including 10 elite guards battalions, were earmarked for the defence of London. So Wilson had gone from expanding the British Empire in November 1918 to wargaming the defence of Britain from the British in January 1920. Okay, we'll pause here now at the halfway point for some reminders. You're listening to Peelers and Sheep, Rebel Tales from the Land, and I'm your host, Terry Dunn. I research and narrate these podcasts. If you want to see some of the references and background reading, go to the project website, peelersandsheep.ie. We're also on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook and there you'll find project announcements and various bits and bobs related to the episodes like photographs of sites or clippings from primary source documents. So follow Peters and Sheep on those platforms and make sure to share and retweet. This is the first of another three episodes on the hidden histories of the Irish Revolution. So be sure to subscribe and if you haven't already, check out the earlier episodes on the same theme One's looking at agrarian and labour conflict in Ireland and one on an Irish regiment in India in 1921. Okay, thanks for listening. Now let's go back to 1919. From December 1919 through to November 1920, the 2nd Battalion Royal Dublin Fusiliers were in Constantinople and afterwards in India. The Royal Dublin Fusiliers was the regiment of counties Dublin, Kildare, Wicklow and Carlow. Despite its name, it actually had its main depot in Nace, County Kildare. From November 1919 into 1921, the 2nd Battalion Royal Munster Fusiliers were in Cairo, Egypt, later transferring to Khartoum and adjacent Sudan. The Royal Munster Fusiliers was the regiment of counties Clare, Limerick, Kerry and Cork. The 2nd Battalion Royal Irish Rifles and 1st Battalion Royal Irish Fusiliers were in Mesopotamia, or Iraq as it is now known, with the Royal Irish Fusiliers also having the aforementioned foray into Iran, where they got to beat the Red Army. Stationed in India was the 1st Battalion Leinster Regiment, 1st Battalion Connacht Rangers, 2nd Battalion Royal Irish Regiment, and 1st Battalion Royal Inniskillen Fusiliers, while the 2nd Battalion Royal Dublin Fusiliers went from Constantinople to India at the end of 1920. There were also Irish troops along the Rhine and in Upper Silesia, but we already have enough to be going on with. First Egypt. On the 5th of May 1920, Lieutenant Herbert Heden of the 2nd Battalion Royal Munster Fusiliers was gunned down on a Cairo street in a close quarter assassination. As the regiment was one of those disbanded in 1922, this was likely the last fatal casualty suffered by the Munsters. It was also, of course, exactly the sort of street assassination by pistol that accounted for a fair slice of fatal casualties and political violence in Ireland in 1920 and 1921. A couple of days after the assassination of Heden on the night of Saturday, May 8th, 
Men of the Raw Munster Fusiliers mobilised for the sort of unofficial reprisal their colleagues in Ireland became locally well known for. A headline reads, Munster Fusiliers attack number of natives. But it seems some of the potential violence was headed off. One newspaper report reads, quote, Before midnight, a detachment of the Munsters, vowing vengeance for the murder of their officer on Thursday night, rioted near the Citadel. But a non-commissioned officer was successful in persuading them to desist. Shortly after midnight, two soldiers were fighting in an alley off Kezar El Nil uh, when a crowd collected. A lorry patrol was summoned, and as the attitude of the crowd was considered to be leading up to a demonstration, two shots were fired. One European, believed to be an Italian, was killed. The city is calm this morning, but a very uneasy feeling prevails. End quote. The regimental history retold the Royal Munster Fusiliers' participation in Cairo street violence with gusto. Quote, During 1920, the state of Cairo was very disturbed, outrages by fanatics and assassins being frequent. On numerous occasions, parties of the battalion were called out to assist the police in maintaining order. This was done with remarkable efficiency and thoroughness, though without loss of life, and the process was much enjoyed by the rank and file. The method was simple. A platoon, of whom not more than two carried rifles, proceeded to the scene of action, armed with pick halves in a motor lorry. On arrival, they jumped out and charged the mob, which, after two experiences, declined to wait their arrival. The densest mob melted away in 30 seconds. I've already touched on India a little bit in this episode, and if you haven't listened to the earlier episode, The Last Campaign of the Lancers, give it a listen. That goes into uh, detail with the Leinster Regiment's final role in British India. So just bigger picture in India is what I'll go into now. So there were five battalions from the Irish regiments in India in the early 1920s. Now the radicalisation of the nationalist movement in India related strongly to the sense that support for the imperial war effort during the Great War would be met with post-war reform leading to a measure of self-government. In fact, the government piled repression upon repression, something which reached its nadir with the brutality of the Amritsar massacre, as historian David Arnold explained. These are David Arnold's words. The massacre sent shockwaves throughout India, aroused intense anger and deep antagonism to British rule. If a single event were to be chosen as the critical turning point in the entire history of India's nationalist movement, the Jalanawala Bagh massacre that's the Amritsar massacre, would be surely be it. For it revealed the intrinsic violence of British rule, a savage indifference to Indian life, and an utter contempt for nationalist feeling and peaceful protest. Um, end quote. This massacre was carried out under the watch of Tipperary man Sir Michael Francis O'Dwyer, then governor of the Punjab. 21 years later, he was to be the victim of a retaliatory assassination. So then you had the non-cooperation movement, and the non-cooperation movement meant an escalating program of disengagement from the institutions of the empire, starting with boycotting government schools and elections, then boycotting law courts in favour of independent arbitration councils, then asking civil servants to resign their posts, and from October 1921, demanding that Indians leave the police and army. There was also a boycott of foreign manufactured cloth, and an effort to re-establish domestic artisanal production. 
Now, all this represented a radicalization of the Congress Party, which was the Nationalist Party. But in many ways, this radicalization mirrored that within their Sinn Féin contemporaries in that it was tempered with a strong dose of social conservatism. As in Ireland, so in India, there was a wider movement not controlled by the nationalist leadership. That leadership had ruled against industrial strikes and protests over access to forests. Um, a particularly egregious grievance was the state's monopoly over forestry, which curtailed the use of forest resources by forest-dwelling communities. Likewise, Congress sought to paper over social divisions in the Indian agricultural countryside. So now to what is now Turkey. The situation in Constantinople, which the 2nd Battalion Royal Dublin Fusiliers was inserted into, was one where the victorious Allied states of World War I were dismembering the Ottoman Empire. Now, as is well known, this meant that Iraq, Jordan and Palestine would be governed by the British under a League of Nations mandate, and likewise Syria entered the French orbit. However, the planned carve-up actually went further than that. The territories contained within the present-day borders of Turkey, Anatolia and Eastern Thrace, were likewise to be divvied up. There was to be a remaining rump Ottoman state. Parts of the western coast were to be given over to Greece. The Bosporus waterways between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean were to be internationalised and independent Armenian and Kurdish states were to be established. All of this was really intended as an expansion of the informal British Empire. There were also to be spheres of influence for Italy and France. There was localised resistance to all of this, particularly to the expansion of the Greek state, a localised resistance of bands of irregulars. And then there was also a situation of dual power we had the old Ottoman authorities in Istanbul or Constantinople, as it was then known to Europeans or to Westerners, rather, and also a Turkish national movement in Ankara. And so you had the Ottoman authorities in Constantinople as one government and the Turkish national movement in Ankara as another government, or both claiming to be the legitimate power in Anatolia. Uh, Kemal Pasha, the leader of the Turkish national movement, had been an Ottoman general with some victories. Notably, he commanded the Ottoman forces in fighting at Gallipoli. The Turkish instance is an instructive instance because it's easy to cast these events in a hue where you have the evil empire on one side and heroic indigenous patriots on the other. But actually the process of nation-state formation, of establishing an independent centre of capitalist development and trying to catch up with the West, or at least not be its latest victim, was frequently a brutal process. And so it was in Turkey. The Ottoman Empire, even in its Anatolian heartland, was a religiously diverse and multi-ethnic society. As that was divided up into nation-states, there was what would later be called ethnic cleansing. Ethnic cleansing on a grand scale, culminating in massive population transfers between Greece and Turkey. Also, who were the freedom fighters here? The Turks? or the Greeks, or the Armenians. It's not actually so simple. It's difficult to acclaim the uh, Greek forces as anti-imperialist heroes when they were the local allies of the British Empire. So the British and Greek governments had agreed to an attack on the Kemal forces as the Turkish nationalists, but political concerns, namely the lack of support back home in Britain, had delayed things. It's also notable that uh, London did not get the support of the Dominion governments for the Turkish adventure. 
that's to say there were not Canadian, South African or Anzac troops made available for the intervention into Anatolia. So a pretext was needed for a wider conflict. And on June 14th, 1920, that pretext was, was provided in the form of a clash at Izmit between Turkish irregulars and British forces. Now, the first Royal Dublin Fusiliers casualty was found June 20th when a Private Brennan was killed. So it seems like the dubs were there right at the beginning. On June 22nd, the Greek offensive began on the Aegean coastal territories. There were some joint Anglo-Greek amphibious landings, but mostly there was a lack of British support for the Greeks. Another problem for them was the dissolution of the Ottoman army, also known as the Army of the Caliphate, which they had expected to be fighting alongside. Events had the character of a Turkish civil war. Remember, as I was saying, there was an Ottoman government and the nationalist government. So there was kind of a Turkish civil war on the one hand and a Greek-Turkish war on the other. For the Greeks, militarily speaking, things proceeded smoothly over the summer of 1920. The Turks mostly just ran away. In the West, there were mostly just irregular forces. But then on October 24th, there was a counterattack by the Turkish nationalist movement. As with the aforementioned ethnic cleansing, the context of this counterattack presaged much of the 20th century. The Turkish nationalist movement had reached an understanding with the Soviet Union, thereby protecting their eastern flank and also opening up the prospect of Soviet support. So inter-imperialist rivalry was key to understanding Turkish national independence. Not only with regard to Britain and the Soviet Union, but the French and Italians also decided they would prefer Kemal Pasha to what would have been a much more British-dominated Eastern Mediterranean. The summer of 1920 also saw revolt in Iraq, or Mesopotamia as it was then called. That is where the 2nd Battalion Royal Irish Rifles and 1st Battalion Royal Irish Fusiliers were stationed. The revolt began on June 26, 1920. Iraq was much more like an actual shooting war for the British Army and much less like the aid to the civil power type scenarios current in Egypt or India or like support for a proxy conflict as in Constantinople. In Iraq, there were two sieges the Royal Irish Rifles were involved in. One is the besieged and one is a relief force lifting the siege. The Iraqi insurgents seem to have been aided by two factors. Firstly, they had a pre-existing tribal structure which provided them with an organisational framework, though reliance on that also made them localised and fragmented. And secondly, there was the presence within their ranks of experienced veterans of the military of the Ottoman Empire. Also, leftover armaments from the Great War were widely available. This is how the commanding officer of the British forces there described the situation. From 1914 to the armistice, except for an occasional brief spell of leave, I was never absent from the Western Front, and my troops often held ground which in the parlance of the time was called unhealthy. But these 12 days at Baghdad in 1920, days that seemed like years, surpassed all the earlier ones in the mental strain which they imposed. End quote. So what does all this leave us with? Well, one uncomfortable fact, uncomfortable to many people in Ireland, is that there were actually as many Irish men in the years 1919 to 1921 shouldering rifles for the British Empire in faraway places like Calicut, Cairo or Constantinople as there were armed insurgents in Ireland. 
Now, of course, the argument that would meet that bald fact is that the Irish Revolution was about much more than just the squad or the flying columns, which is, of course, absolutely, totally true. However, the image of the Irish Revolution that we have today is almost a wholly militaristic one. Compare the small presence in memory of, for instance, the anti-conscription campaign of 1918 with the overbearing presence of a militaristic image built around what were actually minor skirmishes, and indeed minor skirmishes which were unrepresentative of the more typical pattern of assassination and sabotage. Now, part of the reason for that militaristic image is the cultural weight of an imperialist militarism. When you see posed pictures of separatist volunteers from the 1920s, you're seeing a particular image of masculinity and nationhood, which was actually once shared with Britain and with continental Europe. Even more fundamentally, though, the journey around the world with the Irish regiments underscores the fact that the Irish Revolution happened in the international context of revolution. In fact, the scope of the British Empire takes in only parts of that context. Not only is this context not one that Ireland was somehow outside of, the rest of the United Kingdom was indeed also part of this wider international movement. Hence Wilson's plan for the mobilisation of the British military for internal security in Britain. A mobilisation which would, of course, be aimed in part at ex-soldiers. A special branch report from the time makes plain the fear of a situation where widespread military experience among the population put the police at a disadvantage. The Irish Revolution has to be placed into a global context, and an imperial context, and a British context. That may seem counterintuitive, if not stone mad, making the Irish Revolution British. Well, that's why these are rebel tales. They're tales that rebel against conventional wisdoms and preconceived views. But what's my case? Well, let's look at what the next two episodes are about. First off, we have George O'Callaghan Westrop, a County Clare landlord who was a Southern Unionist leader. That's a leader of the British Nationalists in Ireland who wanted all of Ireland to remain part of the United Kingdom. Now, their big mobilisation was the Home Rule Crisis of 1912 to 1914. But that was a Conservative and Unionist mobilisation involving forces across the United Kingdom, not just in Ireland, though obviously it was concentrated in Ulster in the northeast of Ireland. And what launched that reactionary mobilisation was a British Conservative opposition to the People's Budget and to inheritance taxes, the beginnings of the welfare state, leading to a constitutional crisis, then the Home Rule Bill, and a patriotic issue with which to build a reaction to the reforming Liberal administration. The next episode after that is about the farm labourers' movement in County Dublin in 1913, something which merged into the Great Lockout of that year. Now, in the chronology of Irish history, that is there as a sort of precursor to the Separatist Eastern Rebellion of 1916. But it was also part of the Great Unrest, a strike wave across the UK in the years running up to the First World War. In fact, it was probably the Transport Union which was the most radical and militant high point of the Great Unrest. Now, mostly in those episodes, we'll be in the cabbage fields of Crumlin and the milk and parlors of Munster. But these local rebel tales were always part of a bigger international story. Make sure to subscribe to be sure getting those episodes. Peter and Sheep is on TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks for listening and thanks to everyone who has supported the project in any way. <laughs>